invited us this morning, having started with 1 Corinthians 13 and finishing with the content of that hymn as well. Did you notice that? The deep, deep love of Christ. Our hearts have been prepared. 1 Corinthians, excuse me, forgive me, I'm not going to announce my text yet because we've got a little things to review here. Uh, let's again pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word uh, this morning. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to look into the perfect law of liberty. Uh, your word. Help us, Lord, not just to be faithful hearers, but especially in relationship to understanding what it means to have a word-saturated home, faithful doers of the word. May we do the word together in our homes and then together in our church home, our church family here um, increasingly. So guide our understanding by the help of your spirit as we open uh, your book today seek to do your will the right way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Several weeks back, for those of you who are guests, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we began a little three to four week journey here on what it means to have a word-saturated home. We're going to conclude that little journey today. The last time we were together, we started what we would call a textual message. Expository preaching is typically the manner of preaching we do here. I haven't done a textual message. I've done one topical, and I think this is the first textual in about 30 years of preaching here. But I thought it would be good to break apart what it means to have a word-saturated home. Um, scripturally, with these three words, we need to consistently understand what it means to have a word-saturated home. We need to deeply understand that and meaningfully. We're going to continue on in that second part that we uh, came to last week. What does it mean to deeply have a word-saturated home in a relationship to growing a deeper understanding of our faith, the doctrinal content of the Word of God? And that's going to naturally and supernaturally crescendo us to how, does, how do we meaningfully, meaningfully live this? Okay? How do we meaningfully live this? 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you go there with me this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll be looking at several different texts today. But we'll pick up where we left off last week. What does it mean to have a Bible-saturated home? Well, it's a process. It's not a rubber stamp thing. First and most important, you must know the God of the Word in Jesus Christ. You must know the eternal word of God himself, Jesus Christ. When you know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've come to him in faith and repentance, repentance from your sin and placing your faith in him exclusively as Lord of your life, uh, the, the Spirit of God, that third person of the Godhead indwells you, and then he becomes, among a myriad of things he does to minister to your soul as an indwelling person of God, in your soul. He illuminates your heart to the significance of Scripture. Uh, he takes the written page and he takes the truth from that written, written page and allows it to jump off the page into your mind and into your heart. And then the Spirit of God becomes your divine tutor. He becomes your personal divine tutor as we begin to grow from the simple things, learning the simple things of the Bible, unto the more um, meaty to the deeper things of the scriptures. But in order to understand the word of God, you must know Christ. 
So we invite you to know him today. We trust that you've seen his love on the way in, as you've looked around, as you've listened to people sing, and now as you listen to his word preached, we hope that you hear and see the love of Christ exalted and the person of Christ live through the lives that you're watching today. And if you're intrigued by the person of Jesus Christ, we'd love to have a conversation with you so that you can know him and get that settled in your heart once and for all so that you can begin your journey in understanding what it means to have a word-saturated life and a word-saturated home. We looked at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17 last week. We read those. We highlighted in verses 14 and 15 uh, the repetitious way in which the Apostle Paul highlighted the words learned, knowing, or know. Uh, we touched on the grammar of those words last week which direct our hearts and minds to continuing to deeply develop our understanding of the Bible, okay? Our understanding of the Bible itself. We noted that Timothy didn't have, uh, the author of this letter is Paul. He's writing to a pastor, a young pastor named Timothy. And this Timothy didn't grow up in a home uh, with a Christian father or from what we understand, even a Christian grandfather. And yet by the time Paul is ready to launch his first missionary endeavor, this young man has been nurtured in the Bible by his grandmother and mother in such a way that he's developed his own personal testimony in Christ in his own town and the region beyond. And the way he lived his life was a Christ-like way, and it became obvious to those around him in his community and region. And Paul was encouraged to take him on his first missionary journey. You can go back and study that. Acts chapter 12, 13, 14, and so forth. Okay? But Paul supports this axiomatic truth in the words used here that we find in verse 16. He supports this truth. That this familiar passage relays to us the most simple but yet profound reality of the Christian life. That after we know Christ through his gospel that we are able to learn God's truth so that we can live God's truth. After we know God through his gospel in Jesus Christ, we're able to increasingly know his truth so that we can live his truth. And there's several words here that we began looking at last week that tell us that. Verse 16, all of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, all Scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. We want to unpack the meaning of each one of these words uh, that will help us understand that after we come to know Christ, we, the Spirit of God gives us the ability to know His words so that we can live His word. Teaching, all Scripture. This is the divine doctrine Again, both Old and New Testaments. This is the, uh, even if you look at a simple Bible study tool, maybe you have a Bible study Bible. MacArthur's Bible study Bible says this, and I quote from that Bible study Bible at this point to let those of you that have uh, newly come to Christ as your Savior, that there are resources out there, such as the MacArthur study Bible, that, that would... Uh, encourage you to get in the Bible on your own because there's study notes uh, 
uh, in that kind of a Bible that will help you understand what you read if you can't understanding it first reading. But I'm going to use this definition for that purpose because I know we have a handful of folks in the auditorium this morning that have recently come to know Christ. And the Bible was given to you, it was given to all of us, both Old and New Testament, right? And it provides for us the comprehensive and complete body of divine truth necessary for life and for godliness. We know it deeply so that we can live it comprehensively. That's the goal. We know it deeply. We'll never know it perfectly because we're broken. We're perfect in Christ, but we increasingly know it as deeply as possible so that we can comprehensively live it. We'll never perfectly live it because we're broken. We're perfect in Christ, but our practice is growing in Christ's likeness. But nonetheless, the Scripture provides the comprehensive and complete body of divine truth necessary for life and godliness. The local church, there's a process of deeply learning this teaching, this doctrine, this body of faith, both Old and New Testament. It starts with your personal attention to God's Word. There will never be anything this side of heaven that should trump that priority in our lives. You must first start with God alone in your study of the Scriptures. That's very, very clear. In a Bible teaching church, you should be provided then a mentor, a spiritual mentor to help you grow from there. The Bible does not teach that you're connected to a mentor first to learn the Bible from them. The Bible teaches that you study the Bible on your own first, walk with God, and then you're connected to the spiritual mentor who's also connected primarily with a personal walk with God and His Word, and then you learn the Word together. That's one anothering each other through the Christian experience. Many of us didn't grow up with that opportunity to have a spiritual mentor. So we were relegated to just a few ways that we could learn and live God's Word. We were told to study it all the time, and then we were told to come to church or sit in the classroom and hear it preached or taught. And then we were told to live. There's a huge gap in that process of learning. It's a Grand Canyon gap. God's designed every one of us to have a spiritual mentor in the Christian walk. For parents in homes, you're the mentor for your children. As an adult, when you're emancipated from your parents' home, right, God's designed you to be mentored in your local church by somebody. And we don't need to rehash all those scriptures we've done for years here now in relationship to that. But personal study of the word, connecting with the mentor to systematically study the word. Okay. To learn how to systematically apply it to your life. We devote ourselves to God. We learn then how to systematize that truth and learn it together. And then we're always going to be connecting with the church family for even deeper study of the Word in public worship, Bible studies for all ages, and Great Lakes Bible Institute classes. It's my responsibility as a pastor to make sure that I'm equipping you to do the work of the ministry along these lines. And come September, God willing, depending how the virus comes or goes, 
we're going to be outlining for you in the month of August. Um, I'm super excited about how we're going to be able to go deeper in the Word and wider in the Word and the way we live it together. And we'll be providing for you some uh, very particular ways we're going to do that going forward, God willing, in September. But it's good for teaching. It's good for teaching in this way. It's good for reproof. See that next word there? Let's unpack that word. In all these varied ways to learn doctrine, the Word of God personally or together with God's people, is able to pinpoint, and I'm going to quote a resource that I love to use. It's a language resource called Luo and Nida, and this is what they say about the word reproof. That someone, it's able to reprove, it just means that, it's, 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 that someone has done wrong with the implication that there is adequate proof for such wrongdoing. Now, that doesn't sound very popular in our day, does it? No one likes to be told that they're wrong. And you know what? I don't like telling people they're wrong. But I'm not the one telling people that they're wrong in this passage. All scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine and for reproof. The very nature of the Word of God itself is corrective. And there's no correction that can take place until there's, until there's a pinpointing of wrong. A pinpointing of wrong. But the Bible in its nature doesn't leave us there. It doesn't leave us broken. Because the next word that we'll unpack here is the word correction. And the word of God applied together personally and then collectively is able to, and Luo and Nida says this about the word correction, to cause something to be or become correct again. To cause something to be or become correct again. There's a clear indication here that the nature of God's word has both convicting and healing ability all by itself. So in our culture where we hear a lot of people being trained and a lot of pastors proclaiming, it's my job to make the Word of God relevant to the listener. My friends, that's false teaching. It's not my job to make the Word of God relevant to you. The Word of God in its nature is already relevant. And that should compel us to study it to rightly divide it, to apply it, to allow it to reprove us, right? And then allow it to correct us just in our own personal reading. And then with our mentor, how much more comprehensive does that become as you learn from each other how the Word of God has taught you, broken you, corrected you? And how God's grace has helped you and then they have resources, a systematizing of that truth together that you can walk through together in life. This is how we more deeply come to understand the Word of God. Parents, I believe God uses you as tools in this way too with your children. Teaching them doctrine, using the Word of God as the, as the reproving agent, letting the Word of God be known to your children as to its own relevance, rather than you being the lecturer, rather than you being the scolder? How about we let God's Word do it? Let's just learn it. 
hey, this is where God's word really broke me today. <laughs> this is the proof that I sinned this way, kids. There's no better way to train your children to tell them how you failed and how God's word was used to heal you after it broke you. And that's what Galatians 6, 1 and 2 is. Great cross-reference here next to the word reproof. Okay? And correction is Galatians 6, 1 and 2. If you find your brother overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, confront him. Take the word of God. Right? But do it in a spirit of meekness and gentleness, lest you also be tempted. The word of God has to be the centerpiece of all of our relationships. As we deeply continue to understand it and know it and live it. So do you have a relationship in your life with any soul that is able to allow the, the natural relevance of God's word to be used in this way? I hope you have it personally with you and God, but have you come to the point yet where you've been challenged by God to have a mentor, someone walk with you, utilizing the word of God the same way? And parents, are you utilizing God's word that way in your own home? You don't have to weaponize the Bible when the Bible by its nature is divine power and relevance unto learning, convicting, healing, and living. Deeply knowing the word includes understanding the intrinsic nature of the word itself so you can follow up in your home by coming alongside those who need spiritual help and then decide to walk with them. As to the scripture's relevance, we have Hebrews 4.12, right? The word of God is. Let's just stop there and think about that for a second. That's its nature. The word of God is likened unto a sharp, double-edged sword. And what's it always doing? It's a pretty deep and comprehensive work that by its nature it can do in the human soul, isn't it? You couple that again with another spirit-filled believer who is enjoying the word of God and its relevant work in his or her life and how much more deeply we know God's word. And if you're going to walk with your children or other souls in your home the same way, you'll know. You'll know it's altruistic, deep, and comprehensive work. The final word here is training. Again, the word of God compels us personally then, collectively, to understand what Luo Onida says here is instruction with the intent to forming proper habits of behavior. The root of this word is where we get our English word to train up a child, right? The discipline of training up a child. When we train up a child from infancy forward, what are we doing? We're doing exactly what Luo Onida says this word means. We're giving instruction with the intent of forming proper habits of behavior. Remember, teach me and I remember. A friend of mine recently said, a friend of some spiritual authority, you shouldn't tell your people, Tim, that they need to please God because in Christ they're already pleasing to him. 
listen to this, meditate on it. You shouldn't tell people that they need to please God because in Christ they're already pleasing to him. They went on to say you don't want to give an adult or a child any idea that the way you teach pleasing God could lean towards legalism. I said I appreciate that. I appreciate positional truth. You folks know our preaching here. We are perfect in Christ. When God looks at us, right, he doesn't love us anymore when we have a good day, and he doesn't love us any less when we have a bad day. We're justified, forever reconciled, right? We are positionally pleasing to God. But the Bible is replete with text after text after text that talks about what it means to grow in being com- becoming familiar with the life of Christ and how he lived it. That's our goal. That perfect life is our modeling. <laughs> He's our model, if you will. He was a perfect model. We're not that. But after we're made perfect in him, life's a process, isn't it? Of learning what it means to become like him, even in the way he lives knowing his character and enjoying the way he lives. Saturating ourselves in the scriptures, especially the gospels, begging God for a proper understanding of the nature of Christ as God and the the nature of Christ as man and how he lived God's character as God in flesh. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 17. You can write that as a cross-reference here next to this word training and righteousness. This, this instruction with the intent of forming proper habits of behavior. There's a new life that we find in Christ in 1 Peter 1, 13 to 17. And this new life in Christ is a journey towards what Paul says, what Peter says there is a present active imperative, you be holy, <laughs> because he's holy. Right? You be holy, because he's holy. Jesus said, well, unless you become perfect, you could be no friend of God. Jesus wasn't talking in that text where he said that uh, about a perfect way to live. He was talking about perfection as it relates to justification. Yes, we may have to be made perfect in Christ. That happens the moment you're saved. Peter's talking about a different kind of perfection. He's talking about a practical walk towards Christ-likeness. You be holy. There are things that the Bible lays out for us that have been preserved for us that give us instruction with the intent of forming proper habits of behavior. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 5, if you will, a few pages over here. Hebrews chapter 5. The author of Hebrew writes to uh, Christian Jews who have struggled in their walk with the Lord, a familiar passage to many of you. Hebrews chapter 5, let's look here at verses 12 to 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God and you have have come to need milk 
and not solid food. So their spiritual growth had been stunted, and that can happen to any one of us as believers. I understand that. But if our growth is left stunted, let's look at verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk, in other words, they're staying on those elementary truths, they're not growing deeper understanding of their faith, is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for those who are mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That sounds to me like training, instruction with the intent of forming proper habits of behavior. One of those proper habits of behavior is being able to discern between good and evil. I know it's difficult to comprehend for some here this morning, and I totally get that. It was for me for a long time in my Christian life. How can I be a born-again Christian, be perfect in Christ, and still struggle with knowing what the difference between good and evil is in some circumstances? The word discern here is very interesting in the grammar. I'm unable to discern even as, are you with me? Even as a born-again, hang on with me here, spirit-filled believer. If I walk away from being governed by the Spirit of God, it can be a possibility that I could be in a situation I would not be able to discern whether it was good or evil. If I'm not growing deeper in my walk with God. I think we've all been there, right? It's a super uncomfortable place for all of us to be. A proper spirit-filled response to it is, I don't want to be here often, or maybe never again, so I need to get in the Word, I need to study it, and I need to keep growing deeper by myself, with my mentor, and availing myself to as many opportunities to learn my Christian doctrine, the embodiment of my faith, as I possibly can. Let's go deeper. Let's go deeper. Pastor Hobie, this week we were talking amongst each other in the office And he said, there's an ecstasy. He said it, and I got out my phone, and I wrote it down. There's an ecstasy of knowing and embracing holiness. Not merely, and he used the familiar line of a hymn we love to sing here, and we're always going to sing it. He said, not merely I run to Christ when torn by sin, but how am I becoming like God in the way I live? At some point, we grow, we grow continually, always appreciating and always applying the atonement of Christ to our life. But that atonement, all right, that transfer, transformation we have in our hearts because we know Christ is to that same grace that saved us is that same grace that thrusts us towards holiness, godlikeness. Even though we struggle and we fall, we confess, we forsake, and then we what? Proverbs tells us. We prosper. We grow. Deeply knowing God includes deeply knowing his word and gradually living life as Christ would have lived his life. Christ is the living word of God and we are his children indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And as we grow in our understanding of the word, we grow in Christ's likeness, both in the content of his character and the manner in which he lived. Why? The final phrase here in chapter 3 tells us, if you go back to 2 Timothy, Right, let's go back to 2 Timothy. Why? Verse 17. Here's the purpose clause. Here's the intent of why we grow deeper and grow this way deeper so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So that the word of God, the man, the man of God, that's you and me, male or female, 
may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The word adequate here is a it's a, it's a, it's a really exciting but sobering word. I think it has to be really carefully handled. Because if it's not understood properly, it'll discourage really well, a lot of really well-intentioned believers here. Okay? And that's not the point. As far as I can determine, this is a rare usage of this word in the New Testament. It literally means to be proficient. Proficient. We're compelled by grace to be really good at what? Every good work. Every good work. And that proficiency, that adequateness is born from what? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable so that you can become really good at living the body of faith that you adhere to. It's got to have a practical application to life. And the only thing I can tell you is this, right? We've got to examine the life of Christ so we know what it means to really know how to live life. As the Lord gave me a home and then added souls to it, this word adequate didn't haunt me as to my responsibility to having the souls of my home deeply know the word of God, but it remains to this day a very sober reminder to lead my family into a more thorough comprehension of Christian doctrine so they know how to discern between good and evil. A word-saturated home requires our consistent and deeper investigation of God's word personally, domestically, and ecclesiastically, and it requires that together we finally this morning meaningfully saturate our homes with the word of God. Meaningfully. What does that mean? Remember our quote from a couple weeks ago from Benjamin Franklin, tell me and I forget, teach me and I remember, involve me and I learn. Those three phrases, regardless of what you think of him, are principally based in Scripture. We've been going through that with consistently, consistently, deeply, and now meaningfully. This final point, again, is going to be a challenge to many of us. And I think it's probably going to be mostly a challenge to those who have been in the faith the longest. Okay? Because many of us were reared in local church good local churches that were not passionate about reaching out to someone and walking life with them according to the word of God. Really faithful, three, four services a week, we're tithing, we're serving, we're busy. But rarely, if ever, did that include, hey, will you walk with me for the rest of your life, and let's learn the word of God together so that we can live the life of Christ together. And it's still not popular in our day, but I'm telling you, because it's not popular doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. Meaningfully, involve me and I learn. This is principally founded in God's word. Jesus said it in Mark 3.14. 
He said to his disciples, I have chose you, I have chosen you, so that I could be with you, so that I could send you. Again, do we know the life of Jesus and are we okay with it? Our goal here is Christ-likeness. Not just in the content of our character, but we can't say that we have the content of the character of Jesus Christ fully understood until we're willing to walk it ourselves and then walk it with somebody else. Life on life for life. That's uncomfortable. Especially, again, for those of us who have been Christians for a really, really long time when we're used to our routine. Is it possible to saturate our home so well with the word that the souls we live with can discern it deeply and apply it daily to their lives while we keep the conversation rolling and transparent enough where everybody feels compelled to discuss the word of God's and its application to life regarding any subject? Pastor Mike said it before. The heartburn of living life is that we have to do it daily. I thought about this part when he said that. But daily doing it with someone. We're consistently speaking it, knowing it. We're growing deeper in it. But think about this. Does the word of God and its natural relevance, its supernatural natural relevance it has itself, does it, does it have any way to be put on display in life unless we're willing to live it ourselves and then live it with somebody else? Paul mentored Timothy for 18 years, and he continued to shepherd him even when he was pastor at Ephesus. Paul, in his early years of being a Christian, learned from Aquila and Priscilla, but Priscilla and Barnabas played a critical role in his life too. And all those folks continued to walk with life, in life, with Paul. And these examples and many more. What we know and how well we know it is to be modeled in a life on life reality so it could be truly learned. Christianity was never merely learning by filling in the blank, taking notes, or learning good hermeneutics in a classroom. And I'll take 10 seconds to say that again. And I want every older believer to write this down. Christianity was never and I, in my notes, I have the word, every letter in the word never capitalized. Christianity was never merely learned by filling in blanks, taking notes, or learning good hermeneutics in a classroom. Those are essential. That's the consistently and deeply part, right? But we're not done yet. Meaningfully. Truth has to be enfleshed and modeled one life to another life in order to spiritually influence the remainder of those lives. Truth, Jesus, the truth, was enfleshed to be with those, to walk and live with those who embraced him in repentance and faith. This enfleshed Jesus, we've entrusted our lives to, and by his example, we enflesh, we model, we live the truth with others during the natural rhythms of our lives. This is first and foremost done in the home. This is just as significant a biblical truth as consistently and deeply speaking and knowing the truth of God's word. It is impossible for spiritual truth 
to be fully comprehended and lived by souls in our home if it is not first modeled by someone in that home and then an invitation is given to the souls in that home to walk the truth of Scripture together. Will you do this with me? Think of the effective words that Paul speaks to the Galatians in this regard in Galatians 4.19. Would you go there with me real quickly? Galatians chapter 4. The reality that we're describing in Scripture this morning as far as this last point meaningfully, the reason why it's so unattractive is because it's so slow, it's so hard, and it seems so unsuccessful. We live in an American culture where we can, uh, we can do things in a pristine, clean, concise, compelling way for a whole group. But boy, when we pump the brakes on that, we stop and we really look at what the Scripture says in relationship to this life on life, this meaningful way in our homes and in our church. Um, I would say our Americanism our westernized Christianity has heartburn over that because this is telling us to slow way down. It's not all done in a classroom or an expository sermon series, both of those which we will never turn away from. But involve me and I learn. What was Paul's passion for the Galatian saints? Powerful, powerful wording here in Galatians chapter 4. And verse 19. My children. Paul rarely uses that term. We know the author John in the Bible uses that a lot, right? So he's really, really, really uh, trying to appeal to a group of people that are really, really struggling in their faith with legalism or readopting legalism as their way of life. But he knows they're saved. So he says, my children, please listen, right? I know you're being tempted to walk away, and some of you have, but I want to bring you back. Remember what my goal was for you, and it's, it's powerful here. His life on their life for life. My children, with whom I am again in labor. And yes, that's exactly what that means, all right? I suppose women would get this better than men at this point. But nonetheless, he uses the term labor. So you see how guttural this is to him. How absolutely divinely essential this is to him. My children, please listen. I'm in agony again. Just like I was in agony before you received the gospel... Now that you've owned the gospel and you're struggling and you're starting to walk away from the gospel, I find myself in labor pains again, spiritually. Until what? Christ is formed in you. Christ is formed in you. The word formed here is, is uh, exciting. It's exciting. Whenever we went to my grandmother's house in Williamstown, West Virginia, just over the border, just over the bridge in Marietta, Ohio, if you guys go 77 south, you go over the bridge, the first exit is Williamstown, Ohio. 
There's a lot of reasons why I was excited to go to my grandma's house, but I always knew when I went to my grandma's house that she had made homemade popsicles for us. And when we arrived, she was going to be standing at the door with her typical spirit-filled, she knew the Lord, smile, and, and I, you know, it just makes me weep to this day when I think about her hello and her hug with one arm as she's holding our popsicles in the other. Right? She would take liquid-colored sugar water, and she'd put it in a form, and she'd put a popsicle stick in it, right? And she'd brace that popsicle so as that water would freeze, it would embrace the popsicle stick. And she knew when we were going to arrive, so she'd pull those popsicles out of her freezer at just the right time. So she knew when she hugged us, she could just pop it out. It was melted enough, she could pop it out and hand us a popsicle. But wouldn't you know, that popsicle took the exact form of the plastic container in which the liquid was poured. That's the idea here. Until Christ is formed in you, but hang on as we wrap up this morning. Because it goes more meaningful here. Lua and Nida, in their description of this word, says this. Until you become like Christ was or he is. That's how the Galatian believer would have heard it. Until you again become like Christ was or Christ is. So it is with the souls in our home. We invest some 25 minutes last week exploring the biblical reality of what it means to consistently speak and rehearse the Word of God, and that's all good. We learned three weeks ago that this consistent speaking of the Word of God must be conjoined with personal interaction with our children and souls and our church family in daily learning, going deeper. So now we meaningfully are to live what we consistently speak and deeply know in order to truly understand what spiritually successful Christian character and life and the way it's lived really is. So before we continue, are you consistently speaking the scripture in your personal environments? Are you deeply growing in your understanding of the word of God personally and then together with somebody else and in the various ways that this local church provides you to be able to grow deeper in your faith? Is your Christianity merely relegated to speaking and learning the Bible? Who are you modeling the content of your faith to and with. If it is, I soberly challenge you today to consider what God's word mandates. Even as Christ lived, what does it mean to model the word of God for souls in your home and modeling the word of God with people in our church family? So again, what's the 50,000 foot application of modeling God's word? When our children rise up, when they walk by the way, and when they lie down. We live it with them. That's the Shema of Israel, Deuteronomy 6, a couple weeks ago. And then I can confidently and principally proclaim that these three identified items implies there's a modeling of the Word of God in between breakfast and lunch, and lunch and dinner, and dinner and bedtime. I have seen extreme applications of this modeling in my life. Radical right-wing homeschool cult leaders where dads quit their jobs, built plantations out in the country so they could be with their kids 24-7, 365. That's not what Deuteronomy 6 is. We do and live the word of God with each other, but never at the expense of other biblical obligations. We find a way 
by begging God for wisdom, how we can live our lives, fulfill our roles, do our jobs, fulfill our life calling and our vocation, and still live the word of God with our family and then with someone else in the church. There's axiomatic truth to be trumpeted at this point. We can never emphasize one truth of God's word at the expense of another. Modeling the scriptures is to be done within the construct of the natural rhythms of your biblical existence. Now, how is this to be modeled? I just wrote down here some practical ways that I've sought to try to do this in my home, and I've been broken in the way I've done it. Completely imperfect, but hopefully progressing. I've tried to do so with love, patience, and compassion. Love, patience, and compassion. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6, don't provoke your children to wrath. Don't exasperate your children. Don't exhaust them. I find out that when I exasperate and I exhaust my children, it's pretty much me doing the preaching instead of the Word of God doing it. Right? But, when I'm able to sit down and tell them how the Word of God taught me, broke me, healed me, and trained me, and you say, I'd like to invite you along that road with me, will you go? That builds vulnerability and transparency and togetherness. Way too long way too long, way too long. Elders, elders' wives, deacons, deacons' wives, Bible study leaders, Bible study leader spouses, listen to me. Way, 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 way too long have we not taken the people we teach God's word to through that step, four-step process. For way too long, right? This is what I've learned. This is how it broke me. This is my imperfection. This is how it healed me, and this is how it's growing me. Now will you go with me on this journey? So we try to do it with love and patience, transparency. We try to do it with conviction. Ephesians chapter 6 is very clear. In our homes, a word-saturated home, we would nurture our children in the admonition of the Word of God. That word admonition alone and nurture means that with love and compassion, we confront. We use the word of God as that reproving agent. We already talked about that earlier. This means that we also do this with our family and with those that we're spiritually mentoring or being mentored by in times of temptation. In times of temptation. Man, this week, you're not going to believe this. This temptation came out of the blue. This tells you how broken I am as a human being. I tempted. Thank God I was able to use a verse that I memorized to help me fight off that temptation. But man, did you, get, did you go through anything like that this week? How often do those conversations have happen in our homes, in our discipleship relationships? I don't think they happen that often. And if they do, good for you. But boy, this temptation came... And by the way, you know they're common, right? They're human. So I know you're having them, because I'm having them. This is how God's Word helped me, but this is where I fail. Transparency. But this is how God healed me. Will you go with me? When people in our home experience fear, when the person you're discipling is fearful, Anyone been scared lately? 
Someone down and I had dinner on East 4th Street with my family last Friday night in Cleveland. And I sat at the table at Mabel's Barbecue and I wept. Turned away from my family so I could wipe my tears because all I saw going down East 4th Street, beautiful little city within a city, was boarded up windows and just a sense of darkness all around me from the influence of violence. Has the pandemic scared your children? Has it scared you? Does the word of God have an answer for that? Fear? Certainly it does. Are we even walking transparently enough for, through, through life with people in our home and our spiritual mentors and mentees to even talk about how you've been fearful of it? To walk through it? And how God's word helped you walk through it? Whether you're fearful of it or not. When facing opposition, play by play, go out in the cul-de-sac of our first home and the kids are playing wiffle ball in the cul-de-sac and your sons come into a disagreement with each other and you walk outside and one's got the other one in a, in a headlock, right? And they're pounding on his head, right? So after I stand there for a moment and just kind of laugh and chuckle because I remember when I pounded my brother's head and he pounded my head and it's good for the boys to kind of go through that for a little bit. And when I noticed it was, and when I noticed it was getting a little out of control, you know, I could go over, grab him behind the right, the neck, and, and pull them apart, right, stand them up, right, what does the Bible say, or how can I walk you through, let me tell you what my brother and I used to do, let me tell you this, 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 and this, and this, now will you walk through me, but hey, dad comes home from work, he remembers the opposition in the cul-de-sac in the t-ball game, dad had opposition at work, I'm not going to tell you the name, but I can tell you the circumstance, and let me tell you how I failed, let me tell you how I failed and how I had to confess that to God. So I'm with you guys. I get it. And guess what? Whether it's t-ball, right, when you're 5 and 7, or whether it's work when you're 37, guess what? Opposition's going to come in every form, in every way, right? Will you guys walk with me and figure out how to work this out? Hope so. One favorite offer of mine said, you know, sin always looks better in the windshield than the rearview mirror. So how do we face temptation, fear, opposition? How do we do this together? Can the souls of our home be situation, learn how to situationally live the word of God because they've learned how you're living it and living it with them? This, and since the gospel changes our souls, the word of God changes the way we live. The gospel transformed the word-saturated life, lives counter-culturally to the worldly trends that exist in our time. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Let us be faithful hearers and doers. James 1.25, so then we'll be blessed in our deed. John 17.17, 17, Lord, sanctify them by thy truth, because thy word is truth. Those seven synonyms and seven adjectives used for the word of God in Psalm 19, verses 17 to 14, teach the naive believer 
Those seven adjectives and synonyms used for the Word of God in that text teach the naive believer how to be skilled in the art of living, but living this together. My favorite authors recently wrote, wrote this. We're far too comfortable being Christian-ish. We embrace the language, symbols, and trappings of faith, but we flee when the substance and tenets of the faith threaten our comforts or ambitions. Seeking the path of least resistance is not winsome. It's unfaithful. We've got to do this together. Consistently, deeply, meaningfully maintaining word-saturated homes means holding up and living out the Word of God with each other. I encourage you parents to write down Psalm 78, 1 through 8. Because of time, I was going to finish reading that. But we can't. Tell me and I forget. Teach me and I remember. But involve me and I learn. Nothing encourages my heart more then when I see this going on in my home, though imperfect process, and when I see it going on at church, though an imperfect process. There are so many here that are doing this together, and you know the joy of it. You know the joy of studying the Word on your own. You know the joy of getting together in Bible studies and learning how to rightly divide the Word of truth together as people in Bible studies. You know that, don't you? And then you know the joy of going and living what you mine out together, right? But where is it really learned? It's really learned when we live it together. Where is the second or next generation or third generation of believers really going to come from? It's going to be coming from those who are willing to live the word of God that they've learned together. Together. That's where it's at. It's found in that human relationship. So let's continue to grow as much as we can in that regard. Okay? Word-saturated homes. Consistently, deeply, but meaningfully. We've got to live it together. Okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for those souls in our church who love the word as they study it personally. We thank you for all the souls. Help us all to learn. Lord, to, to love the Word in our personal study. Love the Word as we seek to learn how to study it together. We thank you, Lord, for Simply Blessed and other resources on our disciple-making material that help us systematize truth and learn it so that we can live it and live it together. We thank you, Lord, for the relationships that you've given us here in Jesus Christ. Help us to know that word-saturated homes simply does crescendo to being able to live it together with each other. All that we've learned. May that increasingly be our reality here. May we leave now, Lord, with more joy than what we came. In Christ's name, amen.